This is Unfilter, episode 331 for October 15th, 2020. In the email, Vadim Pozyarsky, who is an advisor to a Ukrainian company called Burisma Holdings, thanks Hunter Biden for inviting him to Washington and giving him an opportunity to meet his father. The paper also reports that an email from May 2014 shows Pozyarsky seeking advice from Hunter Biden on ways to use his influence on behalf of Burisma, which gave Hunter a lucrative job on the board of directors. Hello, friends, and welcome into episode 331 of the People's History Podcast. It's mid-October, and it seems to be full of surprises, one of which, no presidential debate this week, so I'm doing a little bonus live stream. <laughs> it's been a long time since I've done a live unfilter, but there's unfortunately no debate, which means I had to come up with something, and um, I thought maybe instead I'd just do something a little small, just a quick surprise stream. I might do these from time to time. Because uh, there's something special about doing a live show. But uh, we're gathered here today <laughs> to talk about some really wild stuff. Uh, let's talk about that uh, debate that didn't happen, that was supposed to happen, but then Trump got the Rona. <laughs> it's just unbelievable. It's unbelievable what I start with this week. And this isn't even going to be the big thing we talk about. And, uh, but I'm not going to so- do a virtual debate. So you're not so, Mr. President, you're not going to do it because the CPD, the Commission on Presidential Debates, announcing this morning uh, that the second presidential debate will be virtual. Are you saying you're not going to participate? No, I'm not going to waste my time on a virtual debate. That's not what debating is all about. You sit behind a computer and do a debate. It's ridiculous. And then they cut you off whenever they want. Yeah. I mean, that's probably what he really doesn't like is they might cut him off, though. Looking back in history, it's not unprecedented, though our modern debates, you, you, you picture something like two old guys on Zoom and that just being horrible. But I take you back to October 13th, 1960, 1960, 1960, hey, ladies, uh, 1960, when Nixon and JFK were debating, get this, virtually, although we didn't call it that back then. Good evening. I'm Bill Shadell of ABC News. It's my privilege this evening to preside at this, the third in the series of meetings on radio and television of the two major presidential candidates. Now, like the last meeting, the subjects to be discussed will be suggested by questions from a panel of correspondents. Unlike the first two programs, however, the two candidates will not be sharing the same platform. In New York, the Democratic presidential nominee, Senator John F. Kennedy, Separated by 3,000 miles in a Los Angeles studio, the Republican presidential nominee, Vice President Richard M. Nixon. Now joined for tonight's discussion by a network of electronic facilities which permits each candidate to see and hear the other. Good evening, Senator Kennedy. Good evening, Mr. Shadell. And good evening to you, Vice President Nixon. Good evening, Mr. Shadell. Now, if this isn't evidence enough to you that the networks could be doing a better job with their work-from-home setups, <laughs> I mean, this sounds better than Zoom does today. They even strangely have a perspective on it that kind of makes it look like Nixon's looking at him. And this is how they debated back in 1960. So it's actually possible to do a virtual debate, although the way we do things today, I don't think I would have liked it as much. But it hasn't been good for Trump. It basically has been spinnable as him wimping out of the debate. It opens up Joe Biden to have a have a nice slot where he can have a town hall. Trump's going to attempt to pull something off. But it's not a great week. 
And the polls aren't looking so good either. Not that I put a lot of stock into those, but when taken in collection, that doesn't look good. And you have to wonder if maybe Trump isn't feeling it. So can I ask you to do me a favor? Suburban women, will you please like me? Remember? Please. Please. I saved your damn neighborhood, okay? Wow. The other thing, I don't have that much time to be that nice. You know, I can do it, but I got to go quickly. We don't have time. They want me to be politically correct. Oh, yes, let's discuss it. Let's talk about it over the next 10 years. No, no, no. No, we saved your, you, we saved suburbia in the U.S., I got rid of a regulation that was a disaster, and it was very unfair, and you've been reading about it for a long time. It's been going on for a long time. It became much worse under Obama and Biden. Now, uh, this reminded me, when I heard it, of sort of the Jeb Bush moment, when you could kind of tell Jeb Bush knew the direction things were going. I think the next president needs to be a lot quieter but send a signal that we're prepared to act in the national security interests of this country to get back in the business of creating a more peaceful world. Please clap. Bit of a famous moment, and it isn't quite that bad because his crowd's really fired up, obviously. But it is, it is kind of desperate. Please like me. Please, please like me. Uh, things are not so good for Trump at the moment, depending on what metric you're looking at. He may have some real issues in what used to be standard states that would go to the Republicans. However, I did a little looking around, a little looky-loo, and it's kind of funny how things are just almost lining up exactly like the numbers lined up for 2016. And the numbers that I always kind of take the most seriously are the ones that the bookies are reporting. See what they're saying, right? Well, I did a little looking around this weekend, and things are kind of stacking up exactly like they are in 2016. Even the even the press around the bookies is writing just like they did in 2016. Big, big money is all in on Biden, and they really are predicting a major Biden win. But little individual money, like actual more bets, are being placed for Trump. That's exactly how it went down between Trump and Clinton with the betting last time. And the polls are all out of whack, too. So it's it seems like it's a tough week for Trump, but I'm not so sure it's been a great week for Joe Biden either. In fact, I think he's had a bit of his own October surprise here. I don't know if it's hit as hard as those behind it were hoping, but there's a pretty large email leak that shows evidence that Joe Biden lied about his Ukraine dealings when he was up on the debate stage recently and many times before. And the documents look pretty legitimate. Tim Poole, who is now hated by the left, even though he's a progressive as far as I can tell, had had really concise like machine gun coverage of what's come out today. As I record this, there is actually some discussion on an, on some of the television networks now. But earlier today, as I was prepping, there was, in fact, there was so little coverage that the fact that there's so little coverage is one of the stories around this Biden email leak. Joe Biden's son, Hunter Biden, has had emails and photographs leaked in a major breaking story, an exclusive for the New York Post. Now, this scandal is so serious, Democrats and their allies in media are panicking, trying to claim it's not true. There's no evidence. It's fake. Facebook even saying they are actively censoring the story. That's how serious the story is. Some of the emails show that Hunter Biden was leveraging his father's name and access to his father in exchange for more money from some companies. 
Is that so hard to believe? Here's some details about what the emails reveal. In the email, Vadim Pozyarsky, who is an advisor to a Ukrainian company called Burisma Holdings, thanks Hunter Biden for inviting him to Washington and giving him an opportunity to meet his father. The paper also reports that an email from May 2014 shows Pozyarsky seeking advice from Hunter Biden on ways to use his influence on behalf of Burisma, which gave Hunter a lucrative job on the board of directors. The email contradicts claims by Joe Biden that he's never spoken to his son about his overseas business dealing. And the campaign released a, um, I guess, a statement, a written statement. Uh, it happened while I've actually started, sat, while I sat down to record. His campaign released a statement saying, uh, we've never had any meetings with this person. It's never been on my calendar. Uh, fake news. <laughs> that's, that's pretty much what the campaign had to say about it. Uh, but it's the, it's clear the emails are saying thank you for making the meeting happen. I mean, it's not like a, maybe this will happen. It's thanking them. The details in this are really surprising. It all comes from emails that were stored on a computer that was dropped off at a repair shop in Biden's home state of Delaware in April of 2019. That's according to the owner of this repair shop. He had raunchy material on the hard drive of the computer and also a USB hard drive, including, according to the repair shop owner, a 12-minute video that appears to show Hunter smoking crack and engaging in a sex act with an unidentified woman, as well as many other sexually explicit images were stored on Joe Biden's son's computer. Now, you can see why they would want to play this down immediately and immediately attack the source because a lot of this is coming from Rudy Giuliani. The store, the store owner got in contact with Giuliani's lawyer. So the customer who brought in a, so a customer brought in a water damaged MacBook Pro. Maybe it was Hunter. Maybe it was, maybe this never happened. They brought it in for service. They never paid for the service. They never came back and picked it up. So the, the repair shop had this. They made a copy of the image before they called, I think, I think the order. Now, I'm not positive because, again, this story is just breaking. But my understanding is he took a copy of it and then he gave the machine and the hard drive to Giuliani's lawyer, Robert Costello, and Steve Bannon, the former advisor to President Trump, told the Post about the existence of the hard drive because Giuliani must have told him. That was back in late September. And then on Sunday, this Sunday, as I'm recording, Giuliani supplied them a copy of the backups with the pictures of him smoking crack and the emails on there with the with the frickin email headers and everything. It's, a you know, like a local email copy. So, I mean, the 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 the, the leap of faith here is that somebody brought in a water damaged Mac Pro loaded up with Hunter Biden's private emails and, and photos in Biden's home state and then never came and picked it up. And the owner went around and got nosy and uh, found these things. Now, the um, the effort to debunk it starts with MediaMatters.org. They've already published a debunking article about this. This is what's going to be cited as the proof that this is fake news. This Media Matters post, which will people people won't really cite the details of it. They're just going to cite its existence and then abstractly reference it as the reason why this is fake news. So I want to read the two points in this article over at MediaMatters.org, which I have linked in the show notes. <clears throat> I want to go over the two points that are used to debunk this story. And 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 the fact that they didn't go after the Julia the, the fact that Giuliani is the source or Bannon 
it was a surprise to me. But what what they said is the reason why this is fake news is, quote, Biden did pressure Ukraine's government to force a prosecutor in question, Victor Shkokin or whatever it is, not that, um, <clears throat> to resign. But he did so because the U.S. government had determined that he wasn't doing enough to fight corruption in the country. So this is the line that you see Biden did get that guy fired, but he did it as part of an anti-corruption sting because Biden's such a good guy. He's such a good guy that Barack put him in charge of anti-corruption. And so as an anti-corruption king, he went in there and got this guy fired. Um, don't don't ask me about the details of how he got him fired, which I'm about to share with you. And don't ask me what other things he did as part of an anti-corruption king, because as far as I know, this is the only thing he did. But that's totally, totally why that guy was fired, not because he was going after the guy that was hiring Biden's son. That's not why at all. So that's one of their debunking points, which isn't actually a fact. It's just their interpretation saying that, well, no, no, that guy was fired because Biden is a crusader for anti-corruption. So that's not true. And that's literally their primary debunking point in this article. They have other ones in here that also don't stand up. And I encourage you to go read this because this is going to be what's cited that is debunking this news, that and, and the source. But Biden has gotten really lucky because it's just been completely blacked out today. It was really something watching in real time as reporters from the New York Post tried to post their story. Or even uh, Michael Arrington, the founder of uh, TechCrunch, he, w- he was trying to DM the link to somebody because he just got curious because it was being blocked. And Twitter censored his DM. Facebook is also censoring this. He's lu- really, Joe is lucky that the big tech companies are all in. Joe Biden, the luckiest. Well, as luck would have it, Hunter Biden, two months after being kicked out of the Navy, lands this cushy job with the Ukrainian fracking company. Notice how they're all about fracking as long as it's not in Pennsylvania or in America. And then as luck would have it, Hunter Biden lands a meeting with this Ukrainian oligarch and his dad, who's the vice president. And once again, as luck would have it, a former Democrat staffer who's now working at Facebook says the Facebook will not be sharing this story on their platform uh, once again, because this has nothing to do with luck. It has everything to do with corruption. And Americans are a lot smarter than that. They can see through it. Now, here's why this matters, is it's more than just a corruption story. I believe it's part of a bigger story that shows outside multinational, multi-corporate national financial connections to the Biden family, probably much like the Trump family has. And these will exert undue influence over a president who I don't think has particularly strong mental capacities. And I don't know what Steve Bannon's angle is on this because he doesn't seem to be a big fan of Trump's at some days and other days he seems to be like a mercenary out there trying to cause political chaos. He called into Fox Business and he made a point that, you know, this information was around for a year. And imagine how this may have influenced the impeachment trial. Well, do you think people understand this? I mean, you say he's got to be held accountable. The media is not holding him accountable. The files also I think show the, I Hunter think the media is gonna, repeatedly I think the media is referring gonna... to his father as my guy. He kept saying my guy while writing to a colleague at Burisma and discussing a $25,000 retainer, Steve. How much did Hunter Biden get uh, while his father was sitting on, you know, was the vice president and he's sitting on a board of this Ukrainian company? Look, he's got, he got a tremendous amount of money, but that's only the tip of the iceberg. There's, there's much more to come. There's much more deeper financial relationships. This is, listen, 
the bottom line is the mainstream media's credibility is going to be online here. They have got to stand up and hold. They've got to hold the the, the uh, fight combo. Not just that. Where's the FBI in this? The FBI had this hard drive since December of last year. If the FBI had come forward when they got this, President Trump would have never been impeached. This is a national scandal. So the FBI had this since December of 2019. Now imagine how that might have a different impact on things. But I want to I want to zoom out here because they say that we talk about Burisma like it's a Ukrainian company, but the reality is it was a Russian company. But it was nationalized when we flopped the Ukrainian government. This really is all intertwined, my friend. This is all intertwined with Biden. Biden is at the core of what we did in Ukraine during the Obama administration. And it's all out there. We even covered it here on the show. You might remember the classic moment when, when, when Victoria Newland's audio from a phone call had been leaked. And she had the F-bomb in there, which drew everyone's attention. So that would be great, I think, to help glue this thing and have the U.N. help glue it. And, you know, fuck the EU. Oh, yes, right. The big F-bomb distracted us. We didn't, uh, we didn't focus on the rest of the audio in that call. But shortly after the F-bomb, she says some other things that probably were worth listening to. Now, if you don't remember, I have a link in the show notes that has an entire um, article written up about it. There's also the full five minutes of leaked audio on YouTube. The first four and a half minutes of this call is Victoria Newland from the State Department working with people underneath her and other members that are coming into the Ukrainian government to take it over. This is them setting up the different people and managing the PR backlash and figuring out how to get different individuals to comply with the way they need, how to put people in the right position, and also, who are they taking out? Even though you can tell when you listen to the full call, the guy she's speaking to doesn't really feel comfortable with it. But, you know, she's moving. She's making decisions. It's a fascinating bit of audio now listening back with history uh as hindsight it is i mean they're setting the whole thing up man it's all in there man but this is the bit that's at the end of the call after the f-bomb that didn't get played when you first heard this and this is the part that ties it to joe biden so that would be great i think to help glue this thing and have the u.n help glue it and you know fuck the eu no, exactly. And I think we've got to do something to make it stick together because you can be pretty sure that if it does, if it does start to gain altitude, the Russians will be working behind the scenes to try to torpedo it. And again, the fact that this is out there right now, I'm still trying to figure out in my mind why Yanukovych did that. But in the meantime, there's a party of regions faction meeting going on right now, and I'm sure there's a lively argument going on in that group at this point. But uh, anyway, we could uh, we could land jelly side up on this one if we move fast. So let me work on let me work on Klitschko, and if you can just keep, I, I think we want to try to get somebody with an international personality to um, come out here and help to midwife this thing. And then the other the other issue is some kind of outreach to Yanukovych, but we can probably regroup on that tomorrow as we see how things start to fall into place. So on that piece, Jeff, uh, when I wrote the note, uh, Sullivan's come back to me, uh, VFR, saying you need Biden, and I said probably tomorrow for an attaboy and to get the deets to stick. So okay. Biden's willing. No, no, okay, no, no, great. No, 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 Biden's no, no, willing. No, 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 no. So let's no, be clear no, no. about what happened here. Hey. President Obama and his administration tampered 
with the Ukrainian government. Well, I'm trying to think of the word they used. It's not collusion, but uh, they used to have this other phrase that the Russians used to kind of pull the strings. Meddled. Oh, meddled. They meddled in the Ukrainian government. They meddled in the Ukrainian government, caused it to topple. They then planted their own guys who had just been at D.C. not too long ago meeting in the White House. They implanted their own guys in charge of the country. That domino set off a succession by Crimea, which then flared into a proxy war with Russia, setting back relations with Russia, oh, 30 years, back to the Cold War. And as part of all of this, they nationalized Burisma, and Hunter gets a job. Hunter also uses his access during all of this so that these new slimy politicians that are coming into power can buy access to Joe Biden. $25,000, you get access to my dad. You can have lunch with my dad off calendar. $25,000, it's off calendar to have lunch with my dad. He's my guy. I got him. And until recently, until the until just a little bit before the impeachment trial, this wasn't something that was necessarily disputed. You can go back in history. And you can find Joe Biden bragging about getting a Ukrainian prosecutor fired after he got he got in control vis-a-vis his relationship with Obama in control of loans that were going to be given to the nation. Now, remember that whole upset about how Trump blocked money to Ukraine early on? This was holding a billion dollar loan that they needed to nation build. This was Joe Biden using that as leverage to get a prosecutor fired who was going after the guy who gave his son a job. And this is Joe Biden bragging about. Um, I remember going over convincing our team, our <coughs> others, to convincing us that we should be providing for loan guarantees. And I went over, right, I guess, the 12th, 13th time to Kiev, and, uh, and I was going, supposed to announce that there was another billion-dollar loan guarantee. And I had gotten a commitment from Poroshenko and from uh, Yatsenyuk that they would take action against the state prosecutor, and they didn't. So they said they had they were walking out to press conference. Said, "No, nah, I said I'm not going to. We're not going to give you the billion dollars." They said, "You have no authority. You're not the president." The president said, "I said call him." <laughs> I said, "I'm telling you, you're not getting the billion dollars." I said, you're not getting the billion. I'm going to be leaving here. And I think it was, what, six hours? I looked, I said, I'm leaving in six hours. If the prosecutor's not fired, you're not getting the money. Oh, son of a bitch. <laughs> Got fired. And they put in place someone who was solid. Yeah, worked for them. And if you want to buy the political spin that Joe Biden was king of anti-corruption, Mr. 47 Years in Politics was king of anti-corruption, and that was his move to get the corrupt prosecutor fired who just happened to be sniffing around, then I don't don't think there's anything I can do for you. Like, you want to believe that line. That just seems like an obvious political line. And after hearing that audio, I don't know how you could feel that way. (sighs) This corruption is so much deeper than what's even being talked about right now. It's Clinton-esque. It's Clinton-esque in its corruptness. And it's not being talked about. It's 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 sort of like the allegations, the sexual allegations from Tara Reid that have just been completely forgotten. We're just not they just don't talk about it because it's going to damage their candidate. And I have watched social media in real time come up with bullshit excuses for why they're blocking it. And maybe everyone's just figured Joe's going to win. And so when you look back from history, 
They won't. You can't. You can't criticize them for spinning propaganda. Maybe it's because it's from the New York Post and it's Rudy Giuliani, but the emails are there. It's more of a matter of nobody was willing to run it. Giuliani has been shopping this thing for a while, and he had to finally hand over the hard evidence for the Post to go with it. But he's been shopping this thing for nearly a year, and nobody wanted it because they don't want to be on the side of anti-Biden after this election. I'm not so sure he's having a good week. New audio hasn't really helped either because the thing that I've been noticing, especially since the debate, I've really kind of honed in on it, is Joe is really positioning – his campaign as a response to Trump refusing to denounce white nationalism. And um, I mean, I didn't really have an issue with it when he first said it early on. I thought, okay, whatever. You know, first he was saying his his dying son's last wish was that he became president. He actually said that. And then that didn't play so well. So they came up with this one, I thought. And then he was just going to drop it. But they haven't dropped it. And they continue to make campaign videos around this moment and they have dramatized it and they've amped it up so much and the unfortunate thing is this week new audio has also come out that brings all of this into question so i bring us back to the drama and that's when we heard the words of the president of the united states that stunned the world and shocked the conscience of this nation he said there were quote some very fine people on both sides very fine people on both sides you might even remember that he said that on an ABC interview with him and Kamala. And no president said people coming out of fields with torches and spewing anti-Semitic bile and met by people who oppose them and someone dies and he says they're good people on both sides. No president of the United States has ever said anything like that. Ever. Also, there, there was that time that he was confronted at a campaign event and someone had their cell phone going when he got angry. Mr. Vice President, are you aware that you're misquoting Donald Trump in Charlottesville? He never called neo-Nazis very fine people. No, he called all those folks that walked out of that. They were neo-Nazis shouting hate. Their veins But bulging. he said specifically that, specifically that he was condemning them. He no, said, he did he said, not. He said he walked out and he said, let's get this straight. He said there were very fine people in both groups. They're chanting anti-Semitic slogans, carrying flags. He even kind of expanded on this during his CNN town hall. The president has yet to condemn, as you've probably noticed, the far right and the and the white supremacists and those guys walking around with the AK-47s and not doing a damn thing about them. The issue here is that Joe's been around for a long time and you can find all kinds of audio. And this is audio from the 90s where Joe said the very same thing about Confederate flag flying, hate loving ladies. The senator made a very moving and eloquent speech as a son of the Confederacy. Acknowledging that it was time to change and yield to a position that Senator Carol Mosley Braun raised on the floor of the Senate, not granting a federal charter to a organization made up of many fine people who continue to display the Confederate flag. The many fine people. Many fine people who continue to display the Confederate flag. Confederate flag. They're just great people. And so that's the problem is he can nail Trump for this stuff, but he is a hollow politician 
with no actual core beliefs himself. So you can find audio of this kind of stuff out there. Him bragging about hardballing the prosecutor or him saying that people that fly the Confederate flag who were were hate were people who promoted hate. He can say there's fine people on that side and then he can launch his entire campaign to attack Trump for doing that. And here for the record is actually what what Trump said after that event. And you had people and I'm not talking about the neo-Nazis and the white nationalists because they should be condemned totally. But you had many people in that group other than neo-Nazis and white nationalists. Okay, that's what he said. Um, He he, uh, then the next day, he also uh, tried to say that he denounced white nationalism. Uh, but it's a typical Trump problem where he says something not quite right and then has to the next day make a, do a make good. That happened during the election with the stand back and stand by. Um, he then the next day had to clarify, oh, no, actually didn't mean that. Um, so I, I don't know. Um, I can find plenty of times in history when Trump has denounced white nationalism over and over again. I can find clips of it since before he was even president. When you say the party is self-destructing, what do you see as the biggest problem with the Reform Party right now? Well, you've got David Duke just joined. A bigot, a racist, a problem. This is February 14th, 2000. I mean, this is not exactly the people you want in your party. I'm not looking Would you repudiate David Duke? Sure. David Duke... uh 2015. Robocalls are out again. The white supremacist movement supporting you. Uh, Do you have any words for that? Well, I disavow. I didn't even know he endorsed me. David Duke endorsed me? Okay. All right. I disavow. Okay? And I don't mind disavowing anybody, and I disavowed David Duke, and I disavowed him the day before at a major news conference. Are you prepared right now to make a clear and unequivocal statement? This is ABC. All of these are 2006. Renouncing the support of all white supremacists. Of course I am. Of course I am. David Duke is a bad person who I disavowed on numerous occasions over the years. What are your views? This is Chris Wallace during the first presidential debate where he asked him a very similar question to the one he asked him on the most recent debate, March 3rd, 2016. The Ku Klux Klan and white supremacists. I totally disavow... The Ku Klux Klan. I totally disavow David Duke. I've been doing it now for two weeks. This is you're probably about the 18th person that's asked me the question. Paul Ryan this week said, quote, if a person wants to be the nominee of the Republican Party, there can be no evasion and no games. They must reject any group or cause that is built on bigotry. He was talking about you. But I've rejected How many times do I have to reject? I've rejected David Duke, rejected David Duke. Uh, I've rejected the uh, KKK, the Ku Klux Klan. From the time I'm five years old, I rejected them. (laughs) He just, I don't know. There's just something about the way, yeah, it just doesn't stick. It just doesn't stick. But the Supreme Court is the issue of the week. That's really what we need to move to. That has come up recently for Joe Biden on the trail. They'll know my opinion of court packing when the election is over. Now look. Court packing is the question du jour right now. I know it's a great question, y'all, and I don't blame you for asking it. But you know, the moment I answer that question, the headline in every one of your papers will be about that. Other than, other than focusing on what's happening now. I think that would sort of imply then that he is in favor of court packing because that would be controversial and thus generate quite a bit of 
print. So, <laughs> I mean, isn't that sort of what he's implying when he says he won't talk about it now? And a small handful of reporters actually are not letting him slide on this. They're continuing to ask if he is going to pack the court. They are implying that it's probably one of the more important questions about his campaign, since there's not much else to ask. To interview Biden one-on-one and ask him if he plans to pack the Supreme Court with more justices if he wins. Here was that exchange. Sir, I've got to ask you about packing the courts. And I know that you said yesterday you aren't going to answer the question until after the election. But this is the number one thing that I've been asked about from viewers uh, in the past couple of days. Well, you've been asked by the viewers who are probably Republicans who don't want me continuing to talk about what they're doing to the court right now. Well, sir, don't the voters deserve to know? No, they don't. I'm not going to play his game. What? Okay, so what is happening to the court right now? We're about to get to this. What is happening right now is the elected president of the United States has made a recommendation of a Supreme Court nominee to the Senate. That is the entirety of the requirements as put forth by the Constitution. There is nothing in there that limits that to a time frame, say three and a half years for a president. That does not exist. But they continue to make a big deal out of this. Should it exist? I don't know. That's a constitutional amendment. There's a process for that. But then to say that voters, that the voters, the voters don't deserve to know, it, it is an obvious gaffe. And I think it is an example of the types of gaffes we see from Joe when he's put under pressure. He's kind of got this hot shot. Give him a quick answer. Say yes immediately. Say no immediately. Um, sometimes maybe not to the benefit of his overall point. And he says, when the when the reporter says, do voters have a right to know? He says, no. Nah. Well, sir, don't the voters deserve to know? No, they don't. Deserve, I'm not going to play his game. It's not Trump's game. The people want to know if you're going to pack the court. That's not Donald Donald Trump's game is a nominee that has already been put forward. This this is another diversion tactic to try to put the blame on Trump. He'd love me to talk about, and I've, I've already said something on, on pack, court pack. He'd love that to be the discussion instead of what he's doing now. He's about to he's about to make a pick in the middle of an election. First time it's ever been done. First time in history it's ever been done. Really? So they don't deserve to know. And he's had other weird moments recently. He's out a lot more this last week. This is the most we've ever seen him out ever. Uh, and he says that maybe 56 percent of Americans shouldn't vote for him. Uh, Gallup reported last week 56 percent of Americans said that they were better off today than they were four years ago, would have been under the Obama-Biden administration. So why should people who feel that they are better off today under the Trump administration vote for you? Well, if they think that, they probably shouldn't. Oh. They think 54% of American people are better off economically today than they were in our administration. Well, their memory is not very good, quite frankly. <laughs> that was actually a, a recent poll that was put out. Uh, <laughs> oh. You know, Biden's emails actually came up during the Supreme Court hearing. Senator Leahy asked you about the Foreign Emoluments Clause, which is in Article 1, Section 9, Paragraph 8. He asked you whether it was best characterized as an anti-corruption clause. You might remember that in terms of foreign influence and foreign interference. And then he referenced the president and, and various allegations about foreign influence. I, since he asked you about it, and since he asked about foreign influence in government, I, I think it's only fair that, that I ask whether, hypothetically speaking, just hypothetically, if there were, let's say, a vice president of the United States who hypothetically had an adult son, who hypothetically worked for a foreign oligarch, who then sold access to his father, the vice president, 
and his father then intervened in a case to make sure that that oligarch wasn't prosecuted, hypothetically, would that violate, would that constitute the kind of foreign corruption that the Constitution's concerned about? Before she answers, let's just soak in the irony of Russiagate and the impeachment. I would have loved for Russiagate to have found something. What a hell of a story. What a hell of a story that would have been. Instead, we have a bunch of Russia truthers who think it's the new Red Scare who still think, who still think that uh, Putin is pulling the strings. But here we have actual emails where politicians are buying access to the vice president. And you can hear in Biden's bragging that he has sway over what Obama approves, even up to a billion dollar loan. So that's the kind of access they're buying. Politicians and corporations buying access to the White House through Biden's son. Clear financial ties to a natural gas company who's making their money off of fracking out of Ukraine, who was just nationalized by a recently toppled government. None of that is worth investigation. None of that. But Manafort runs a couple of emails for a special interest, and he winds his ass up in jail. I mean, good on him. Throw him in jail. Let him rot there. He looks like a son of a bitch. But this is way worse. I mean, this is right here. It's just all right here. And the FBI sat on it. They knew it. They did nothing. They did nothing with it. I can't answer hypotheticals. Well, I thought you might say that. Um, and I'm glad you don't and won't because who knows, that case may come before you. But um, I think it's a fair set of questions to ask. Let me ask you about something different. Yeah. Let's actually, before we get into the Supreme Court stuff, I, I want I want to cover one more thing in kind of the what the hell's going on this week news. How about this 25th Amendment stuff? Do you see this? Nancy Pelosi has unveiled new a new bid to set up some structure and maybe even a commission around utilizing the 25th Amendment, the one that you can use if the president is not fit to carry out his duties. Thank you for being here. Sorry her audio is so bad. She's wearing a mask. There, All the Democrats are wearing a mask now. She used to take this down and hang it around her neck, but since Trump got COVID, they're all wearing it 24-7. Uh, we are really very honored to have Congressman Raskin uh, to uh, lead us through his legislation, which is so very important. So I hope you will prepare yourselves for a civics lesson or a presentation on the Constitution of the United States. The 25th Amendment to the Constitution was ratified in 1967 after the assassination of President Kennedy with strong bipartisan support. Members of Congress have a duty to take all necessary action to preserve continuity of government and protect the stability and integrity of our democracy for the future. Now stop here. She goes on to say that this isn't about Trump necessarily. Now... I don't know about that. <laughs> it's hard to say. Uh, the Democrats have already tried to suggest that they could use the 25th Amendment before. This has come up Some in 2017. Some are calling for President Trump's resignation because they say he is ill-suited for the job. Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee of Texas says his tweets, including one aimed at Morning Joe host Mika Brzezinski, show he's mentally unfit. This president, as I said, has refused to acknowledge uh, the Russian um, 
collusion and the uh, idea of the Russian involvement of the election, yes, this is being investigated. This individual has fired the director of the FBI and indicated uh, that he did so because he wanted to stop the Russian investigation. Over the series of, of his career here as president, his tenure, uh, he has done a number of things, uh, a number of tweets. He is incompatible with the office and the leadership of this country. That was in June of 2017, where they tried to propose the use of the 25th Amendment. So I am skeptical about this, but I thought it'd be fun to fry a little bacon with you guys. This conspiracy bacon is cooked up real special. What if this isn't about Trump? It could be. It could be that they're trying to hedge, that they think they're going to lose, and so they're hedging so they have another way to try to take Trump out if he wins re-election. Could be that, because I think they will go for a try if you were to somehow win right now. But I think they I think they're buying what they're selling. I think they're huffing their own brand. I think they think Joe's going to win. Now, here's some bacon for you. What if they know something's wrong with Joe? What if they know it and they don't care? They need a vessel to get Trump out of office and to get one of their people in the White House, the vice president, Kamala. Because when you look at what Nancy is proposing here, tremendous power is given to the vice president. Tremendous power. Essentially like House of Cards, Netflix-style kind of power. So what if, what if this is more about Kamala what if this is about setting up a structure ahead of time that's already in place when Joe walks into the office? That could also be a possibility. L listen to this clip of uh, Nancy stopping by MSNBC to talk about what she's cooking up. Yo, Madam Speaker, thanks for your time as always. You, you said flat out this legislation is not about President Trump. So, so why introduce it now? Well, it isn't about President Trump. It's about the Constitution of the United States, the continuity of government. And again, if it were about Trump, we wouldn't do it because the fact is this protects, would protect President Trump because it says it isn't about anybody's opinion of his behavior. It has a formula of, of, of healthcare professionals and statespersons chosen equally by Democrats and Republicans with a strong role for the vice president uh, in, in what would happen should the president become incapacitated. Why now? Uh, because this is part of our agenda for the people. For the people, we're going to... Yeah, we don't get stimulus, but we get this bullshit. Uh-huh. Yeah, she goes on to say we're doing this, is, and she just has... It's a total non-answer. Total non-answer. But it is possible that this isn't about Trump. It's possible. What you end up with, though is essentially a standby commission ready to take the guy out of office whenever he screws up, whenever he has to go into the hospital, whenever something goes wrong, and whenever the VP sniffs up. And, you know, you think about it now, Pence isn't going to go along with this because a lot of this hinges on the VP. The VP has to be very complicit and accept the transfer of power. Also, not only would Pence not do that, but I don't think the Democrats would want Pence in, in power. They don't want a Pence president. That's not they don't want four years of Pence. Right. Of course not. He's more conservative than Trump. 
So I actually do wonder if it is about Joe and if it isn't a tacit admission by the Democrats that Joe is in no condition to lead. Well, let's talk about the Supreme Court. Talk about a condition to lead. Well, day one was a real waste of time. Patreon.com slash unfilter, friends. <laughs> I, have watched, I have watched three days worth of testimony and I wanted to crawl out of my skin at times. But I did pull away some of the best for you. Democracy Now! has a recap of day one. Less than a month before Election Day and with early voting already underway, more than 10 million people have voted. Confirmation hearings for President Donald Trump's Supreme Court nominee, Amy Coney Barrett, began Monday with opening statements from senators on the Judiciary Committee and from Barrett herself. Four of the Republicans on the Judiciary Committee are up for re-election, including the chair, South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham, who's in a very close race in South Carolina. Carolina. Senator Kamala Harris is the Democratic vice presidential nominee. The hearing took place in a room closed to the public amidst coronavirus precautions. Judge Barrett sat with her husband and six of their seven children behind her. Senator Harris testified from her office on Capitol Hill because of the pandemic. She wasn't directly in the room. She warned Barrett's nomination jeopardizes everything the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg fought for and spoke in front of a children's picture book titled I Dissent, Ruth Bader Ginsburg Makes Her Mark. By replacing Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg with someone who will undo her legacy, President Trump is attempting to roll back Americans' rights for decades to come. Man, RBG came up a thousand times in this hearing. But I also want you to hear the NBC report because NBC has taken it upon themselves to make sure you know everything the corporations want you to know about this hearing. This is a special piece of work they've done for the establishment. In her opening statement obtained by NBC News, Barrett won't mention her conservatism or devout Catholic religious views. As a Notre Dame law professor, Barrett signed on to a 2006 newspaper ad calling the legacy of Roe versus Wade barbaric, and she'll face questions about abortion. I will be focused on her state of views on a woman's right to choose. Democrats also warning she could be the deciding vote to strike down the Affordable Care Act, with arguments in a critical case set for just days after the election. Joe Biden's running mate Kamala Harris is also on the committee, attending the hearings virtually from her Senate office, tweeting that Republicans are endangering lives. We know Barrett is expected to ultimately be confirmed on a party line vote. And if that happens, it's going to be the most partisan vote for a Supreme Court justice in modern history. Democrats have seen just an absolute wave of donations, money coming in from people who are motivated by this very question. Democrats Today, you'll see in a few minutes planning on displaying photos of constituents who could stand to lose their health care. Now, we'll stop here. This went on and on and on. We'll talk about the money here in a moment. But day two got a little spicier. Day two is the day we want to talk about because that's the day the real racy questions came out like, are you a rapist? Democratic Senator Maisie Hirono bringing back questions that we haven't heard since the Kavanaugh hearings, asking Judge Amy Coney Barrett if she's ever sexually assaulted someone. Since you became a legal adult, have you ever made unwanted requests for sexual favors or committed any verbal or physical harassment or assault of a sexual nature? No, Senator Hirono. 
Have you ever faced discipline or entered into a settlement related to this kind of conduct? No, Senator. Just creepy stuff, right? Um, I mean, it's politics at play here. You see, the Democrats know which way this is going to go. The Republicans have the votes. So they're not really – they're not going in all the way. It's not like it was the last time there was a nominee hearing where it was a real dogfight. This time, it was – it was more of a chance for them to, to, to give a speech. It was a chance for them to, to kind of get a message out there, especially on day one. Day two, there were a few more questions. Let's see if you can catch one of the biggest gaffes that uh, the, uh, the Barrett made on uh, day two. I understand you don't want to answer these questions directly. This is uh, obviously Senator Feinstein asking the question. But the great – you identify yourself – with a justice uh, that you, like him, would be a consistent vote to roll back hard-fought freedoms and protections for the LGBT community. And what I was hoping you would say is that this would be a point of difference where those freedoms would be respected. Now, see if you can catch the gaffe. And you haven't said that. Senator... I have no agenda, and I do want to be clear that I have never discriminated on the basis of sexual preference and would not ever discriminate on the basis of sexual preference. Do you see what it is? Yeah. Yeah, you see it. You can't say sexual preference. You're not allowed to. Not if you're a conservative. And the Democrat, the Democratic senator from Hawaii who asked about the rapist question, she called her out on it. So even though you didn't give a direct answer, I think your response did uh, speak volumes. Not once, but twice. You use the term sexual preference to describe those in the LGBTQ community. And let me make clear, sexual preference is an offensive and outdated term. It is used by anti-LGBTQ activists to suggest that sexual orientation is a choice. It is not. Sexual orientation is a key part of a person's identity that sexual orientation is both a normal expression of human sexuality and immutable was a key part of the majority's opinion in Obergefell, which, by the way, Scalia did not agree with. So in saying that I couldn't opine on whether Obergefell was rightly decided or not, I was certainly not indicating disagreement with it. The point of not answering was to simply say it's inappropriate for me to say a response and the second point was to say that I certainly didn't mean and, you know, would never mean to use a term that would cause any offense in the LGBTQ community. Now, there is a lot of coverage I've seen on the cable networks about that gaffe. And that's all really social media was talking about day two is that she called it a preference and that she's clearly a right wing loony and that Trump has besieged us with a loony who would dare to be so rude as to use the term preference. Um, lots of condemnation. Even though she apologized that day, which I just played there. Lots of condemnation. It's happening right now as I record this. And, of course, it is easy to not only find clips of Democrats using the term sexual preference, I can find clips of Democrats using the term sexual preference in 2020. But this time, bring everybody along. Regardless of color, sexual preference. Based on whatever color, whatever what their sexual preference might be. By race, by age, 
My sexual preference. Doesn't matter what your sexual preference is. What their sexual preference is. Never in the course of her military career had anything about her sexual preference had any impact. Based upon race, color, or preference, or sexual preference. So, you know, I mean, I could even find audio of their beloved cited a million times social justice, original social justice warrior Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who they just went on and on. In fact, that very Democratic senator from Hawaii called her a hero on Monday. Well, here's audio. Some of the last audio we have of Ruth Bader Ginsburg using the term. Society has come to respect uh, people. whatever their sexual preference ridiculous politics of play ridiculous double standards being held constantly and then it getting spun up on social media and spun up on the news that it creates a feedback loop of a bullshit reality it's a bullshit double standard that these politicians are holding each other to and like the stupid sheep people on social media and the news follow it it's it's like it's just it's like exactly what the politicians want it's giving them exactly what they want in fact speaking of ridiculous politics around this entire hearing see if you can catch old lindsey graham's stupid gaffe with confidence that you think brown versus board of education super president is that you're not aware of any effort to go back to the good old days of segregation by a legislative body is that correct that is correct. And I've also said that in lectures that Brown was correct as an original matter. So that is the kind of thing, since I've said it in writing, I felt like I could express before the committee. Uh, when it comes to Hiller, there's... Did you catch the gaffe? Did you catch the gaffe? So the next day, Lindsey Graham is cornered in the hallway on his way into the hearing, and he's called out for his racist comments. By opponent this morning. Of course, by his Democratic opponent. By saying the, the good old days when you were asking about... Graham is so caught off guard by this, he doesn't even quite know what he's talking about. What good old days of say? What are you? You know what I'm talking about? What did this morning? Yeah, this morning when you were asking about. Oh. It was earlier that day, even. Wow. If anybody was listening to who I am and what I said, you know that it was with deep sarcasm that I suggested that some legislative body would want to yearn for the good old days of segregationism. The point that I'm trying to make... I'll stop there. But it just, it was clear when you hear it. You know, he says, oh, the good old days. Like, he's being funny. He's making a joke because it's so ridiculous. But, you know, with the outcome kind of set, you kind of knew what to expect. I don't really think... I think the Republicans took it seriously because they felt like they had a real winner, and she did pretty good. And I think the Democrats didn't really bother putting up much of a fight. And I am no fan of Ted Cruz, but I did like the moment he called them out for it. It is striking that as we sit here right now in this committee room, there are only two Democratic senators in the room. If you look at the dais, there's chair after chair after chair that is empty. The Democratic senators are no longer even attending. I assume they'll show up for their time. But it is indicative of what they're tacitly admitting, which is that they don't have substantive criticisms. Mr. Chairman, may I make a point of personal privilege? Of course. We're in the midst of a COVID-19 crisis, a pandemic, and some members are in their offices following this on television. And to suggest their absence here means they're not following or participating is incorrect. I would note the senator from Illinois and his personal privilege somehow omitted the fact that that all but two of the Democrats were physically here yesterday 
and after the questioning, they made the decision not to be here. That's fine. That, you're, you're welcome to make that decision. But it's indicative when it comes to the time of the questioning that this side of the aisle does not have arguments against Judge Barrett that have any chance of prevailing. Um, there was something interesting that happened before lunch, before they all cut out. Senator Sheldon Whitehouse used his worthless time that was already predetermined to actually do a little bit of good. And he pointed out there's a lot of dark money funneling in to get Amy on the board, on the Supreme Court, on the court. And it's really pouring in from all different sources. And he kind of he has a board presentation up there and he starts linking people together. And uh, I actually thought this was a bit fascinating to hear about the actual mechanics of what's gone into this now to the judicial education project, which could take and allocate the money. And guess who works for the judicial education project? Carrie Severino, who also helped select this nominee running the Trump Federalist Society selection process. So the connections abound. In the Washington Post article, they point out that the Judicial Crisis Network's office is on the same hallway in the same building as the Federalist Society. And that when they sent their reporter to talk to somebody at the <clears throat> Judicial Crisis Network, somebody from the Federalist Society came down to let them up. This more and more looks like it's not three schemes, but it's one scheme with the same funders selecting judges, funding campaigns for the judges, and then showing up in court in these orchestrated amicus flotillas to tell the judges what to do. On the Judicial Crisis Network, you've got the Leonard Leo connection, obviously. She hopped in to take over for him with the Federalist Society. You've got the campaigns that I've talked about, where they take $17 million contributions. That's a big check to write, $17 million to campaign for Supreme Court nominees. No idea who that is or what they got for it. You've got briefs that she wrote. The Republican senators filed briefs in that NFIB case signed by Ms. Severino. The woman who helped choose this nominee has written briefs for Republican senators attacking the ACA. Don't say the ACA is not an issue here. In fact, the ACA was probably the number one issue during the hearings, the Affordable Care Act being struck down. And to be clear, what's in front of the Supreme Court soon is the individual mandate. If they strike down the individual mandate, then the issue of severance will come up. If by severing off the individual mandate, does that invalidate the rest of the law? Actually, in the hearing, Amy kind of suggested it might not. But moving on, White House, Senator Whitehouse had more details on this dark money, which is a fascinating, underreported story. We don't have any other sources other than Senator Whitehouse here who's bringing attention to this in a public setting. I mean, he's very intentionally using his time this way. And so I, I wanted to get as much detail from this as I could. So how are people going about doing it? What is the scheme here? Let me start with this one. In all cases, there's big anonymous money behind various lanes of activity. 
One lane of activity is through the conduit of the Federalist Society. It's managed by a guy, was managed by a guy named Leonard Leo, and it's taken over the selection of judicial nominees. How do we know that to be the case? Because Trump has said so over and over again. His White House counsel said so. So we have an anonymously funded group controlling judicial selection run by this guy, Leonard Leo. Then in another lane, we have, again, anonymous funders running through something called the Judicial Crisis Network, which is run by Carrie Severino, and it's doing PR and campaign ads for Republican judicial nominees. It got a single $17 million donation in the Garland-Gorsuch contest. It got another single $17 million donation to support Kavanaugh. Somebody, perhaps the same person, spent $35 million to influence the makeup of the United States Supreme Court. Tell me that's good. And then over here, you have a whole array of legal groups, also funded by dark money, which have a different role. They bring cases to the court. They don't wind their way to the court, Your Honor. They get shoved to the court by these legal groups, many of which ask to lose below so they can get quickly to the court to get their business done there. And then they turn up in a chorus, an orchestrated chorus of amici. More details in the show notes on that, but just so much money to influence the Supreme Court. And I go back to my take on it a couple of episodes ago. The fundamental issue here is that our government has failed to do its job. There's there are different there are different branches of our government and the one that's supposed to be responsible the congress for making the laws has failed and they have punted things to the supreme court the affordable care act and the individual mandate is one of them i'll have a link in the show notes for this as well there is currently within the power of the democrats hands a single line solution that would invalidate the case before the Supreme Court. If, if the ACA goes to the Supreme Court and the individual mandate is dropped, there is a potential scenario where it just eviscerates the entire ACA. The whole thing falls apart because of critical funding or whatever. That's a doomsday scenario. But the Democrats don't care. And the Republicans are happy to try to kill it. Democrats don't care because it doesn't impact them. They still have health coverage. They're fine. And when I say the Democrats, of course, I mean your Chuck Schumers and your Nancy Pelosi's, right? I'm talking about your rich establishment, the corporatists, not the middle class voters who support them. And of course, the, re- the rich elite. Now, I'm talking, about, I'm talking about these people who have some of the best health coverage you could possibly get. They are playing games with our health coverage. They could solve it in the Congress. They could they could actually just remove the individual mandate. Now, I know that sounds like craziness here. It could be done in one line. Removing the individual mandate would invalidate the case in front of the Supreme Court and would avoid the ACA from being eviscerated. They have the power today, but they like to punt it to the Supreme Court because it's a great political issue for them to grind on, especially in the middle of a pandemic. And who cares? They're only fucking with your health. It's not theirs. There is a solution today that doesn't involve the Supreme Court. Links in the show notes, unfilter.show slash 331. They're punting it to the Supreme Court because it's a great political axe for them. And there's very little consequences. 
And they can blame the whole thing on the Republicans when they have the solution today. Speaking of the pandemic, which really gets me fired up about health insurance, especially as a small business owner now, and I have no health coverage. It really concerns me. And the situation in Wales is bad. They're making it illegal to enter from the UK hotspots. No coming to Wales. Well, a reminder of our breaking news in the last few minutes. The First Minister of Wales, Mark Drakeford, has announced a ban on anyone living in a COVID-19 high-risk area in England from entering Wales. That travel ban applies to those living in both Tier 2 and 3 areas. Let's have a listen to what he had to say. I have therefore asked for the necessary work to be brought forward, which would allow for devolved powers to be used to, pre- to prevent people from travelling into Wales from high prevalence areas of the United Kingdom. Nice fucking model! Where is the, where is the science on this? Of course, it's a bit of a controversy. Things are on the rise, and it appears that more lockdown measures are needed. Right to rule Keir Here's the Prime Minister answering MPs' questions about the surge in coronavirus. I thought I'd play you a little portion of Thank it. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Uh, On the 11th of May, the Prime Minister said that the government's COVID strategy, and I quote him, will be governed entirely by the science. On the 21st of September, the government's own scientific advisers, SAGE, gave very clear advice. They said a package of interventions, including a circuit breaker, will be needed to prevent an exponential rise in cases. Why did the Prime Minister reject that advice and abandon the science? Prime Minister. Doesn't this sound uh, like a cheaper, lower production version of what we have going on here in the United States? Trump doesn't accept the science. Speaker, uh, we will do whatever it takes to fight this virus and and to defeat it. Uh, But since he quotes the sage advice, I might just remind him that on page one, it says that all the interventions considered uh, have associated costs in terms of health and well-being and that policymakers will need to consider analysis of economic impacts and the associated harms alongside this epidemiological assessment. And the advice that I have uh, today, Mr Speaker, is that if we do the regional approach that commended itself to the House and indeed to the Right Honourable Gentleman on Monday, uh, Mr Speaker, we can bring down the R and we can bring down the virus. So uh, will he stick to his position of Monday and support that approach? (laughs) More lockdowns are coming, but you got to follow the science, just not too much science because that might cost too much. And antibody treatments that um, seemed like they were going in the right direction. In fact, two different treatments have been paused this week. Eli Lilly has announced a pause in clinical trials for a coronavirus drug. This comes after Johnson & Johnson paused its global vaccine trial. Both companies say safety is taking priority over speed. Adriana Diaz has our report. Drug maker Eli Lilly announced a temporary hold on its coronavirus antibody therapy Tuesday. It's a drug similar to the one taken by President Trump. Since his return to the White House, the president has heavily promoted antibody therapies to the public. It's totally safe, but it's powerful against this disease. So we're going to get it out to you. The National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases said Tuesday that the Eli Lilly trial was halted following a recommendation from the Independent Data and Safety Monitoring Board and that the trial will be on hold until October 26th 
at the earliest. CBS News medical contributor Dr. David Agus says these types of pauses are routine. Yeah. I was going to make that point, but I figured I'd let him make that point. Now, we're going to end today on a doozy. This is the last clip, but it, like I said, is a doozy. You've heard of this, I'm sure. Nancy Pelosi's meltdown with Wolf Blitzer in the CNN, uh, what is it called? The Situation Room? This is CNN Breaking News. As you know, there are Americans uh, who are being evicted from their homes. So let's break this down in real time. can't pay the rent. Many Americans are waiting in food lines for the first time in their lives. Uh, can you look them in the eye, Madam Speaker, and explain why you don't want to accept the president's latest stimulus offer? Well, because uh, thank you very much, uh, Wolf. And I, I hope you'll ask the same question of the Republicans about why they don't really want to meet the needs of the American people. But let me say to those people, because all of my colleagues, we represent these people. Uh, I have for over 30 years represented my constituents. Uh, I know what their needs are. I listen to them and their needs are not addressed in the president's proposal. So when you say to me, why don't you accept theirs? Why don't they accept ours? Our legislation is there uh, to do three things primarily to honor our workers, our, honor our heroes, our healthcare workers, our police and fire first responders, our teachers, our transportation, sanitation, food workers, the people who make our lives work. You could argue it's a massive bailout at a scale never seen before. We couldn't be doing what we're doing without them. Many of them have risked their lives so that they had to save lives and now they will lose their jobs because but they really, they says really, that the states excuse, go bankrupt. Now, I, I think you all remember if you watch this show, I called it way back, I think, in April. I might be wrong on my memory that Nancy blew the local funding. They're still trying to make good on that. And I think this is in part why she's so defensive about this. And it's only it's going to get so much worse. You guys, it's going to get so much worse here. They're going to start yelling at each other soon. But uh, I think she's so defensive because she blew it. She blew it then. The Republicans have had no incentive to negotiate it since then, and everybody knows it. And CNN was one of the few networks that actually did mention it, it was Tapper, and he brought it up before, and they've kind of remembered, it seems. And I think she remembers their previous criticism, and it, she came into this. Excuse me for interrupting, go Ma Madam Speaker, hmm? but they really need the money right now. Uh, and even members of, I of your own— I understand that, but your, if— But even members if you of your own question, caucus— even members of your own caucus, Madam Speaker, uh, want to accept this deal. $1.8 trillion. Congressman Ro Khanna, for example. Wait, 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 let me just, let me just quote Ro Khanna, a man you know well. I assume you admire him. He's a Democrat. Several insiders of the party think that she should be accepting the deal because the Republicans, the, the Trump White House really, has come up like three times from like almost nothing to $1.8 trillion. And it's a pretty big compromise. They've basically come halfway. And so people inside the party are like, take this, take this. You have a situation where Trump owned the failure of this. Just last week, Trump said, shut it down, shut it down. And it was on him. But by her failure to take their new compromise that they've now had to come back, hat in hand saying, please, here's a here's one point eight trillion because of Trump's hardball that totally displayed their hand. They had to come back and she still didn't take the compromise deal. And now members of her own party are giving her crap, but only a few are willing to say it publicly. And he just said this. He said people in need can't wait until February. One point eight trillion dollars is significant and more than twice the Obama stimulus, make a deal, put the ball in McConnell court. So what do you say to Ro Khanna? 
What I say to you is, I don't know why you're always an apologist, and many of your colleagues apologists for the Republican position. That's laughable. CNN, an apologist for the Republicans? <laughs> that's nice. That isn't what we're going to do, and nobody's waiting till February. I want this very much now, because people need help now. But it's no use giving them a false thing just because the president wants to put a, a check with his name on it in the mail that we should not be doing all we can. That's it right there, isn't it? That's a big part of it. She wants more mail sorters and she doesn't want these checks to have Trump's name on it. She's hoping she can punt this past the election. A check with his name on it in the mail that we should not be doing all we can to help people pay the rent, put food on the table, to enhance benefits, that they don't lose their jobs if they're state and local. That they that this we're talking about the consequences of a pandemic, that the symptoms of a problem that the president refuses to address. But you know and that is Madam and that is the coronavirus. We know that we, is we the know coronavirus. The problem out there, but there are millions of Americans who have lost their jobs. They can't pay the rent. Their kids need the food. That's right. And that's what we're trying to get done. One point eight trillion dollars and the president just tweeted stimulus go big or go home. He wants even more right. right now. So why that's not right. why not work out that's a deal right. with him? And don't let the perfect, as they say here in Washington, be the enemy of the good. Well, I will not let the wrong be the enemy of the right. What's wrong with $1.8 trillion? Well, I, you know what? Do you have any idea what the difference is between the spending that they have in their bill and that we have in our bill? Do you realize that they have come back and said all these things for child tax credits and earned income tax credits or helping people who have lost their jobs are eliminated in their bill? Do you realize they pay no respect to the fact that child care is very important for people whose children cannot go to school because they're doing remote learning, and yet they minimize the need for child care, which is the, is the th threshold with which people, mothers and fathers, can go to work if they have that. Do you have any idea of how under, that's precisely uh, why, Madam short, Speaker, they're that, concerned? That's why it's so, it's so important right now. Yesterday, I spoke to Andrew Yang, who says the same thing. It's not everything you yeah, want, but, you know but what? there's you, a lot okay. there. Honest to God, you really, uh, I can't get over it because Andrew Yang, he's lovely. Ro Khanna, he's lovely. They are not negotiating this situation. They have no idea of the particulars. They have no idea of what the language is here. I didn't come over here to have, so you're the apologist for the Obama, excuse me, God forbid. Madam, Madam Speaker, I'm, God I'm, for I'm not an apologist, Obama. I'm asking. She kind of falls apart there when she accidentally uh, says Obama's name. Again, attempting at least to call him an apologist for Trump is – it's its so ludicrous on its face that nobody watching this would ever buy it. Obama – excuse me. God forbid. Madam, Madam Speaker, I'm, God I'm, I'm not Barack an apologist. Obama. I'm asking you serious questions because so many people I'm are in desperate you need we, right now. Let me yeah. ask you this. Okay. When was the last time – Let me respond well, to well, you. Well, let me ask you. you. When was the last time, Madam questions. Speaker, when was the last time you spoke with the president about this? Oh, she hates this question. I don't speak to the president. Speak Why to not? his, Why his not representative. Call Why not call him and say, Mr. President, let's work out a deal. It's not going to be everything you want. Not going to be everything I want. But there are so many Americans right now who are in desperate need. Let's make a deal. They asked that same question of Boner. I played that clip not too long ago when uh, the situation was reversed and Boner was the speaker. And uh, it was another negotiation similar. 
What makes me amused, if it weren't so sad, is how you all think that you know more about the suffering of the American people Uh than those of us who are elected by them to Uh represent them at that table. Uh, It is unfortunate that we do not have shared values with this White House and that they have in their bill— Why don't you talk about in their bill a tax break for the wealthiest families in the country while they cut out the earned income tax credit for the poorest families in our country and the poorest children in our country. Uh, That we have to fight with them to get them to address the coronavirus crisis because they have said it was a hoax. It was magical. It was a miracle. It was going to cure it. It hasn't. What's that got to do with the stimulus bill? And that's why we find ourselves in this situation. I feel very confident (laughs) about the knowledge that I bring to this, but more importantly, the knowledge that my chairs, our chairs of jurisdiction, science-based. Science-based stimulus negotiation. Academically uh, documented, institutionally uh, suggested in terms of what the cost would be to do it and to do it that way. And about, say, we talk about uh, child care, yes. We talk about safety in the workplace, Safety in the workplace, that's a very important issue, especially. She's just running wolf right now. You know, Nancy Pelosi is an 80-year-old woman. Uh, she does pretty good when you give her when you kind of give her a handicap of being 80 years old. No disrespect. She's obviously, I mean, overall, she's whooping wolf blitzer here. In the time of pandemic. So what I say to those people is we're going to get a deal. And when we do, it will be retroactive. Oh, a retroactive deal. It will be retroactive. Yeah, that's right, because she's going to make good for not getting that local funding back in April. That's what you wrote in a letter to House Democrats, Madam Speaker. And I ask these questions only, as you know, so many millions of Americans are suffering right now. Well, you right quote now. two people who know nothing about the agreement. Well, or not, there is no agreement, but what the suggestions are. She doesn't like the dissenters. As if there's some authority on the subject. Please, uh, give uh, equal weight to 12, I, I, to all of the chairmen on the committee who have written this but bill. So- Jeez, 12 people on the committee. What a waste of taxpayer dollars so far. Many of your fellow Democrats in the House, they want a deal right now. No, they, that they, isn't. The problem solvers, they all want a deal right now. Yeah. And, and here's what they're complaining about, because you wrote a letter to House Democrats and you said this. Let yeah. me read a line from the letter uh, you wrote. The president only wants his name on a check to go out before Election Day and for the market to go up. Is that what this is all about? Uh, not allow the president to take credit if there's a deal that no, will help I millions of Imagine if the media always asked questions like this. Imagine for a moment a world where they always asked aggressive questions, not just to Trump or not just to Nancy because they got her. They got her here. But imagine a world where instead of being celebrities who pose for magazine covers, celebrities that are supposedly our moral authorities. No, instead, if they were politicians who were servants of the people doing the people's bidding, and when they were on the fourth estate, they were held accountable every single time. Imagine, imagine Wolf Blitzer reading her own words back at her. This overall is not even a very hostile interview. He's very respectful to her, and at this point, he's reading her own words, and that's considered aggressive and holding water for Trump. But imagine a world where even they were just this aggressive on the north. This is all about uh, not allow the president to take credit if there's a deal that no, will help I don't millions care about of Americans that. right now. He's not that important, but let me say this. <laughs> With all due respect... With all due respect, and you know we've known each other a long time, you really don't know what you're talking about. If the plural of anecdote is not data. Yes, there's some people who said this or that. Overwhelmingly, my caucus wants 
what is right for the American people. Overwhelmingly, our chairman who wrote the bill, read their statements. They all put out their own statements when they saw what the White House was proposing. So do a service to the issue and have some level of respect for the people who have worked on these issues written the bill to begin with. Now, let me just say this in terms of the numbers. I want people to do the math. We had 3.4, which would meet the needs of the American people for a sustained period of time. Trillion. So that there was some certainty in what would happen. The Republicans said, no, well, so we took it down a trillion dollars by cutting the time. We took it down another $2 trillion, 200 trillion, 200, excuse me, 200 billion dollars. Think about the numbers where they started at. And, and it gives you an indication of why the negotiation was as hard-lined as it is. They started at these incredible numbers. Where does that money come from? It comes from the future. <laughs> That's where it comes from. It comes from the future. And listen to these numbers and, and now reflect on maybe why we haven't received a deal yet. And the fact that the White House has come all the way up to $1.8 trillion does actually seem like a pretty fair okay, compromise. No, well, so we took it down a trillion dollars by cutting the time. We took it down another $2 trillion, $200 trillion, 200, excuse me, $200 billion. It's all just numbers. So we're now $1.200 billion down. We came down to 2.2. At the same Okay, it's hard to follow her because she can barely do it. So they came down to $2.2 trillion after they took out all that stuff. Same time. Since tomorrow will be five months since we passed the bill, at the same time, the small because there was no resolution, Mitch McConnell said, let's pause. The virus didn't pause. And now we're at a place where we need more money. We need more money for PPP, for our small businesses. We need more money for our airlines. We need more money for our schools. So they need more than $2.2 trillion, And the White House is only coming with $1.8 trillion, all of which is is just going to be manufactured, I guess. So we have absorbed nearly a half a trillion dollars more of expenses still within the 2.2. I understand all of that, and I have only the greatest back. respect so for you. So do the math. Madam we have Speaker, come down, I have only the greatest respect for you. We have come down $1.6 uh, trillion. $1.8 trillion. $1.8 trillion is... You guys, you guys realize we're talking about trillions, right? You guys realize we're talking about trillions here? These two idiots are talking about spending trillions of taxpayer dollars. Trillions, you guys. We're talking about a trillion dollars. A trillion. Uh, $1.8 trillion. $1.8 trillion is a lot of money. The American people need that money ASAP because they're suffering right now. And I, I'm, I'm not saying it's perfect. But I'm and saying, you don't care how it's spent. And you don't I, care I care, of course, spent. how it's spent. But I, what I well, don't, don't understand even know is how it's why spent. not, why not talk to the president spent. personally, call him up and say, Mr. President, let's get a deal tomorrow. Look, let me say this. The president has sent Mr. Mnuchin to negotiate. That's what we've done with other presidents. This isn't unusual. What President Bush, we had, we did this quite a bit because that's how you negotiate. You And then you take it to the president. This... Mr. Mnuchin, I think he has integrity representing his position. I, I, may I finish, please? But his, he has integrity representing his position, <laughs> but his position has no integrity. They do not share our values. Have a little respect for the fact that we know something about these subjects. And there's a big difference between Democrats and Republicans in whether they want to give a big tax cut to the wealthiest people in the country in their bill. 
in the CARES Act. We tried to take it out in this bill. Instead, they took out uh, earned income tax credit, child tax credit, expanded health benefits to um, on, uh, uh, UI benefits to the extent that it was agreed to before. Right. So this is, uh, I have every right, confidence right. in what, uh, and the arguments that we make because it's based on science and there it is. documentation. Science. Our chairs know their stuff. They know what they're doing with all due respect to the kind of people you were referencing. And I welcome their enthusiasm. I welcome their interest. I welcome their originality of She's talking, of course, about Yang and the others who are upset with her. And this is always she said that she does the same thing with AOC. She says, I welcome it. You know, I welcome it. This is this is her approach. They're thinking. But the fact is we have a responsibility to meet the needs of the American people in a retroactive way. So they're not at a total loss. They are at a loss because the president has ignored the virus. I wish you would spend time on the fact that if he had not ignored the virus, we wouldn't be in the position we're in. That's like all they talk about. But we are. And what we are. And let me say about that also, I hope that uh, I'm pleased that these um, pharmaceutical companies are taking the responsible position to halt and hopefully then resume uh, because we want the public to have confidence in whatever therapies or whatever vaccines come along that they will take them. Right. And to people who say, well, I don't trust Trump on that, if we trust the uh, uh, Food and Drug Administration for what for what they are doing. The scientists there who've been working twenty four seven. She's running the clock right now, and in the last few minutes here, it just goes downhill for months and months and months. Excellent science. The science should call the shot, and when they let's, do, let's we hope, should all trust and, and, it. And let's hope they get more treatments. Let's hope they get a vaccine. And Madam Speaker, yes. I, I res- certainly respect you, but I also respect Ro Khanna. I respect Andrew Yang. I respect members of the Democrats who are members of the problem solvers. They want a deal because so many people right now well, are suffering. Well, the problem suffering. solvers, by the way, don't have any earned income tax credit or child tax credit in their proposal either. But let's not but go into that. Yeah, you evidently do that. not respect the chairman of the committees who I re- wrote these I respect, bills. I respect. She hates it. She hates it when when he uh, implies that he doesn't respect their judgment. She just gets so fired. And I wish you. you would respect the knowledge that goes into getting uh, the, uh, the meeting the needs of the American people. But again, you've been on jag defending the administration all this time with no knowledge of the difference between our two bills. Been on a jag is an old Nancy go-to line that you can find her saying from way back in time whenever she's going after the press. And she'll even say it to NBC and CNN, who are just so in their lap. And I thank you for giving me the opportunity to say that to you in person. Madam Speaker, these are are incredibly difficult times right now. uh, And we'll leave it on that note. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll leave it on the vote that you are not right on this, Wolf. And I hate to say that to you. But I feel confident about it. And I feel confident about my colleagues. And I feel confidence in my chairs. It's not about me. It's about millions of Americans who can't put food on the table, who can't pay the rent, and we represent them. And we represent them. Getting by these long food lines that we're seeing. Them. I know we you know are. Them. I'm, I'm just we saying. We represent them, and we know them. As we, we say, we know them. We represent them. Don't let yes. the perfect be the enemy of the good, as they say. It is here nowhere in near perfect. Madam Speaker. Always the case, but we're not even close to the good. All right, let's see what happens because every day is critically, critically important. Wolf goes on at one point in the interview to say that he sees the people on the streets. You know, he's a man of the people and uh, they need help. Why won't you help them, Nancy? Now, you tell me what's going on there. 
Is she just all fired up because they've called her on not getting local funding and she's annoyed that the Trump administration won't give them the $2.8 trillion or whatever, $2.2 trillion that she's come down to now? Does she think maybe she has the better negotiating position because it hurts Trump if the economy suffers? Or is she just pissed off because they think Biden's going to lose, which would play into the 25th Amendment bet? I don't know. I don't know what is going on there, but all I know is that was one of the more aggressive interviews I've ever seen with Nancy Pelosi. So that's probably one of a kind. We'll probably never see anything like that again in the history of interviews of Nancy Pelosi. And I I do worry where it's going to go when Biden does win the election. I do worry where media coverage will go. I will do my very best to continue to dig through stories, try to get clips, try to do the best analysis possible, because I think the gravy train for the media is going to come to an end. Unless Trump continues to make news, they're going to just roll over and they're not going to really do anything about the Biden administration. But I'll be here. I'll be watching all of it. I'll be watching them. I'll be watching Joe. I'll be watching Trump, too. Thank you for supporting The Unfilter Show over at patreon.com slash unfilter. This show is a metric ton of work. It is ridiculous, especially when there's lots of hearings and an election going on and email leaks. Holy moly. So your support is appreciated or spreading the word and sharing it with somebody. If they would find this useful, that's also really appreciated. And I also just appreciate you listening. I got to say I do. Links and resources over at this website, unfilter.show. See you back here next week. We may need some faith healers. (laughs) 